He is the Harvard professor, psychology professor, whose news bestseller is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, Steven Pinker. Many people face the news each morning with trepidation and dread. You can always fool yourself into seeing a decline if you compare bleeding headlines of the present with rose-tinted images of the past. But there are uh, roadmaps to decarbonizing the economy that we have to implement and accelerate. They include both uh, uh, policy measures like a carbon tax so that every economic decision that everyone on the planet makes factors in the We're not doing it. That's the there, thing. We're, we're, there well, is no carbon tax. Let's, let's start. <laughs> yeah. Life is better than death. Health is better than sickness. Abundance is better than want. Freedom is better than coercion. Happiness is better than suffering and knowledge is better than ignorance and superstition. Hi, everybody. Today's episode features none other than uh, Harvard University professor, Dr. Steven Pinker, who is a phenomenal intellect. He is really one of these public intellectuals. He's a philosopher. He's a psychologist. He is a, a rational thinker. He is a humanist. And we got into all sorts of topics and more in today's episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I hope that if you do, you'll uh, you'll leave a rating, a review, and let me know what you think about these podcasts, wherever you're watching or listening to them. Please subscribe to my newsletter at briankeating.com. Uh, most of my guests subscribe there, and uh, I get to keep in touch with them. And, and who knows, you couldn't find a better company to be within than the Into the Impossible audience. I really thank you all so much in this time. We're still coming to the end of the pandemic, but the pandemic podcasting will remain and continue because there's no reason to stop a good thing. I'm having so much fun. I hope you are too. Uh, send me suggestions, leave comments or wherever you can, and uh, subscribe to my newsletter and send me an email, briankidding.com. Anyway, enjoy today's episode. Steven is a brilliant person. He's fun to talk to, made plenty of time. He's a new book coming out in, uh, in the fall. Stay tuned for that. I'm going to have him back and maybe a giveaway of his books. So please enjoy this episode with Professor Steven Pinker. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Today, we are joined on the Into the Impossible podcast by Professor Steven Pinker, the Johnstone Family Professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He's the author of many books, including The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Stuff of Thought, The Better Angels of Our Nature, The Sense of Style, which I uh, do love that book, and Enlightenment Now, which is more, most recently. And actually, uh, Stephen, you, were, uh, you, you actually preempted what I was going to open our conversation with by your forthcoming book, Rationality, because I actually got re-exposed to you during the pandemic, uh, courtesy of our mutual friend, Michael Shermer, who tweeted out, how about a free Harvard education in rationality? This is in spring of 2020. Uh, watch Steven Pinker's uh, COG uh, general education class on rationality. And I started to watch it. And I watched all the lectures, including the guest lectures. And it was amusing, kind of frozen in amber, this transition from in-person lectures to COVID, you know, remote lectures only. But I was going to write you, Stephen, you don't know who I am, but uh, but I have a good idea for you. Why don't you take your all your lectures and turn it into a book? But I feel like you already had the idea. So uh, can you mention well, briefly say, what the nature of, right. of rationality <laughs> Yeah, let's okay, right. Good. Good. We violate time and space. And I, I took your advice. My next book is called Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. 
<laughs> well, that's funny because uh, supposedly one, once uh, about a decade ago, Stephen Hawking uh, set up a, a table in uh, in the uh, university at Cambridge University, and it said, "Welcome time travelers from the future." And people were like, "What is he doing?" And then the next day, he the next day he advertised it. And the joke was, you know, they would only be able to attend this event if they could actually travel back. So that's the origin of Stephen's book. We're, we're actually uh, violating time and space. But I want to start off by talking about rationality. And I want to get your prescription as a doctor, as, a, as am I, uh, of philosophy in a sense, uh, about rationality. So today on my way to campus, I walked by some students and they were skateboarding, whizzing down the street. Uh, or on the sidewalks or whatever, and they were on their cell phone or you know typing on their cell phone on their skateboard, not wearing a helmet, Stephen, but wearing a mask. So they were afraid, of, you know, nervous about COVID, uh, but not wearing a helmet and uh, and going at breakneck speed. What do you make of you know these are some of the brightest you know students and humans in the, on the planet, uh, and I assume similar phenomena can be witnessed at Harvard. What do you make of even educated people being so bad at making rational decisions? Yes, well, rationality is always a, a means to an end. We don't call someone rational if they just uh, prove arbitrary theorems or spin out the digits of pi. You've got to have a goal. And often the goal is one that uh, we may not agree with or that may itself not be rational by held to certain criteria. So uh, the wearing of masks, as we know, has become uh, a decision that people make not only for the benefit toward themselves, protecting themselves against uh, catching a, a, a contagious disease or protection against others, not spreading it in case you do have it. But it's also become a symbol. It's become a means of, uh, uh, of advertising what coalition you are sympathetic with. And so uh, bizarrely enough, it, it became a symbol on the American right of uh, defiance of the left, defiance of government. And even on the left, there are conditions in which there really is not a whole lot of benefit to wearing a mask, like you're by yourself on a beach and some people wear it there uh, to signal where, where their heart lies. Uh, in terms of whether or not you wear a helmet, there is a trade-off, of course, between the feeling of the wind through your hair and you know looking really cool and uh, increasing the chances that you will not die in a uh, in a fatal accident. And there isn't you know an objectively correct answer to the question, which is the more rational of those goals to pursue. Uh, I think uh, if we thought thought it through deeply enough, we would probably come to agree that that few moments of pleasure and vanity don't outweigh the chance, however small, of dying in an accident. But um, those personal choices always involve trade-offs between competing values. And I've heard it said even, and there was a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which you know I've, I've taken to saying lately what they used to say about the journal Nature. They used to say, just because it's in Nature doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Um, but actually, we're finding a lot of things nowadays <laughs> published in the New York Post, and these are like hardcore, you know, science papers, or at least the, the theories behind them are, you know, pretty severe, uh, significant. Like Avi Loeb uh, had some uh, some pieces published in, in the New York Post or, or op eds about his discoveries uh, related to Oumuamua. 
Um, I want to talk about that because uh, actually it seems that sometimes the most polarized people in society and even those that have the most polarized views about science and scientific things like global warming or our stem cell research, et cetera, they actually can be correlated with people with high scientific degrees of education. And I wonder, is that a byproduct of kind of, you know, the not the Dunning-Kruger effect, which as I understand, you are, of course, much more astute about it than I am, but it's sort of like, you know, this phrase that, you know, something so preposterous that only an intellectual could believe it. I, I do see things nowadays where people, you know, are, are so entrenched scientifically and they, they believe that their scientific credentials extend, you know, to other disciplines. And so we hear about people, um, you know, that that uh, won the Nobel Prize in, in condensed matter physics and they'll opine about the uh, an Iran treaty. So what is it about even rational people? Like I know that, that this person is not an expert in Iran policy and nuclear, uh, um, you know, the de- denuclearization, but why do we feel this need to, to kind of get authority from people that, you know, may not have the earn the discipline, you know, the, the prestige that we're ascribing to them? Why are academics in particular so quick to ascribe, you know, this, this, bias in favor of things said by their fellow academicians, shall we say? Yes. Well, it's part of the uh, inherent problem of knowing anything, that, that we have to take advantage of the division of labor because you know, none of us knows everything. Most of us know at best a, a little bit about something, uh, which means that we have to, in some sense, trust those who know more about the subject matter than, than we do, uh, which in turn raises the question of who and on what basis should we trust someone. Because uh, truth be told, I don't understand enough about atmospheric chemistry to uh, work out for myself that human-made climate change is a fact. And a lot of the people who do uh, believe what you and I would probably say is the, cor- the, the, the correct belief, namely that human activity is warming the planet, a lot of them are completely out to lunch as to why. If you ask them what, uh, what's the cause of global warming, they might say, oh, toxic waste dumps or the ozone hole, have this vague sense of something you know, of pollution and green is good and pollution is bad. Uh, nonetheless, by taking seriously the people who really do understand the problem, they do arrive at the uh, what we would uh, agree is the the, the, uh, the the best supported opinion. So the question is, on what basis should you trust others? Now, credentials are a kind of shortcut. They're kind of uh, heuristic that uh, is are a better guide to whom to trust than uh, the guy at the end of the bar or uh, something that you read on Twitter. Uh, on the other hand, it's only as good as the actual basis for for, for the, the credential. Uh, and as you point out, if you earn a PhD in a particular subject, if you get hired by a department, if you publish in those journals, that doesn't automatically entitle you to expertise in other subjects. And there is a, a long list of Nobel Prize winners in science who have endorsed crackpot theories including ESP and homeopathy and crank autism cures and denial of anthropogenic climate change and uh, so on. Eugenics. 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 Yeah. And you can't even go by um, whether the uh, uh, sheepskin on the wall is for that particular discipline because even experts can uh, fall out of the uh, consensus of their own field or uh, falling out of consent out of 
away from the consensus is itself no indicator necessarily of being wrong, but they can pursue their own conceits. Conversely, uh, people who take the time to learn about the best research in some other field might have a perfect right to express their opinions on it if they can back it up with uh, research in the field that they are talking about. If they have good reasoning, if they base their factual claims on documented uh, findings. Uh, so there's no formula for who to trust, but uh, one has to kind of follow the train of evidence. Did that person, does that person have good grounds for what they are claiming? Does it stand up to logic? Is it supported by facts? Yeah, I always say when I'm asked, as I'm often uh, done, and I assume it happens to you as well, you know, at a talk I'll give about cosmology, someone will say, well, what do you think about global warming? And I'll say, I hope when you have an atmospheric chemist, you know, from Scripps Institute of Oceanography here, when you have her come and speak and you ask her about cosmology, she doesn't answer the question. You know, she says, well, you should talk to a cosmologist. <laughs> and, and just <laughs> the same way, uh, yeah, so a little net knowledge is a dangerous thing, as, as um, your late great colleague uh, Stephen Jay Gould uh, was the the author of the leader of the series on uh, scientific ex, uh, these treatise of scientific classics, uh, of which Galileo's dialogue is one. And in this book, uh, translated by Stillman Drake, and it's a classic edition forward by some guy named Albert Einstein. Uh, in it, I note that Galileo says these wonderful things that I think I want to run it by you because I, I think I'll get uh, I will get a kick, and maybe my audience will too. But um, what what does this sound like to you? This is Galileo, who is a wonderful writer, incredibly brilliant orator and and writer not so great politically shall we say but he said um he said the following for anyone this vain presumption of understanding everything can have no other basis than never understanding anything for anyone who had experienced just once the perfect understanding of one single thing and had tasted how knowledge is truly accomplished he would recognize that of the infinity of other truths he understands nothing and I think I think of this as like the Dunning Kruger effect, like Galileo writing in 1632, anticipating this kind of effect. That later, I, I believe that uh, Richard Feynman, Nobel laureate, said he said science is the belief in the ignorance of experts, not the wisdom of experts. In that, if science would stagnate, if we all of a sudden just said, okay, well, you know, Newton was right, he was a genius, and uh, I, I don't have to investigate these departures of the planet Mercury. No, I don't have to worry about that. Um, what do you say about the fact that there's always this tension, Stephen, between the respecting of the of the past, the received wisdom, if you will, as a scientist, but always having to assume that they're wrong, and um, and it's it's sort of this dichotomy that is. Because there's a danger of saying, well, you scientists don't know anything. You you said 30 years ago Manhattan would be underwater. But no, no, no. You should listen to us now. And 30 years from now, it'll be underwater. Uh, but the, the reasoning is, you know, it's not like the laws of chemistry or physics have changed. How do you convince someone that the scientific method is provisional? It is subject to consensus. But it should be the best tool that we have as human beings to make sense of our world. Well, that that absolutely is the, the crux of the uh, – issue of what ought a rational person to believe, um, negotiating the trade-off between having to trust in people who know more about it than you do, but not trusting them because of their credentials, because of their uh, fancy-schmancy position, because of their authoritative tone of voice, but rather because they have done the, the, uh, the, the relevant work, they can cite the relevant uh, facts. Uh, and it is crucial, as you point out, that to, to note that we all start out 
ignorant of everything. And in fact, if, if a scientist gets something wrong, that should not impugn the credibility of the enterprise, but strengthen it. Namely, since no one is omniscient, no one has been vouchsafed with the truth, God has not implanted correct beliefs in any of us, our only option is to frame explanations of phenomena and to let the world tell us whether they're, they're right or wrong. And so in the early days of the pandemic, for example, when, uh, you, when opinion did change because it was a new pathogen, uh, there was a new mode of transmission, no one really understood anything, and some of the advice did flip-flop, and the wrong conclusion would be, well, that just shows you shouldn't trust scientists because they say one thing one week and, the, and another thing the other week. It should be, well, yes, we should trust at least the methods of science, not necessarily any given scientist, because given that we start out ignorant, it is our best means of reducing our ignorance. Right. Yeah. And, and, and similar, I think, on the on the, you know, radical or, you know, self-declared, you know, humanists or, or maybe even militant, athe uh, militant self-declared atheists like Lawrence Krauss or Richard Dawkins. You know, there is this tendency. Well, if you don't like it, if you don't believe in science, uh, then you shouldn't use a cell phone because a cell phone uses general relativity to make corrections to the time delay. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a little overblown as well. Like, I, I don't think we have to, you know, accept the issue of, you know, it's like what scientists, another thing that Galileo said is, you know, uh, you know what, a thousand, you know, scientists are not worth the humble reasoning of a single individual. So it is true, although I get a lot of emails like people thought Einstein was wrong, people think I'm wrong, therefore I'm Einstein, you know, will you help me, you know, win a Nobel Prize and I'll share the money with you. Uh, but, but nevertheless, I do feel like there, we live in this age where, as Carl Sagan said, you know, never has so much technology been present by people that understand it so poorly. And I feel like it's getting worse, like Moore's law and everything else and the progress of inevitable, you know, uh, pr progression of human technology and science that you and I are part of um, is only going to make that problem worse. So we're only going to understand technology less and less relative to what is um, what is available. So are you uh, still optimistic? You know, is the, is the trajectory that you outlined so beautifully in Enlightenment now, uh, you know, do we feel after witnessing a pandemic and, and all the kind of irrationality that was surrounding it, are you more optimistic, less optimistic, sort of the same? Well, the uh, people often characterize Enlightenment now and the book that I wrote, two books previously, The Better Angels of Our Nature, as briefs for optimism. But that, yeah. that really is not, not what they are. Right. Uh, they're not encouraging people to take a particular mindset, to wear rose-colored glasses, see the glasses half full, look on the bright side. They're trying to make people aware of facts that they're ignorant of. Most people, if you ask them, have wars gotten uh, better or worse over the last 50 years, they'll say, they'll say worse. Uh, you ask them, has uh, global poverty, extreme poverty gotten better or worse, they'll, uh, they'll say it's gotten worse. Uh, and you know they're wrong and they're wrong. Poverty has been, extreme poverty has been decimated. Literacy has increased. Longevity has increased. Rates of death in war and genocide have uh, plunged. Now, people just are, are incorrect in their beliefs about these phenomena. And uh, because if you base your understanding of the world on events in the media, you're getting a highly distorted view of the world because journalism is a non-random sample of the worst events that have happened on a given day. Right. And all of the things that don't happen, like right. a country that is not at war, or uh, things that happen gradually, like 137,000 people escaping from extreme poverty every single day, just aren't headlines. They happen, they build up, they change the world, and no one's aware of them.
So that's really the, the was the point of, of both of those books, rather than, well, let's assume that everything will get better because things don't get better by themselves. <laughs> they get better only because, and you know, as a as a physicist, you'd be the, the first to uh, acknowledge that the laws of the universe don't care about us. Uh, if anything, they seem to grind us down. They, uh, there's the, the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, in when it comes to uh, our position in the, the natural world as organisms, we are vulnerable to pathogens and parasites, like all living things. You and I are big, juicy hunks of meat there for the eating by you know, itty-bitty organisms that can evolve a lot faster than we can, because their generation time is in, is in minutes rather than in, in, in decades. Uh, and so we're sitting ducks for, for pathogens and germs. We have to. The only reason we're not all dead is that uh, we've uh, fought back. In uh, our evolutionary history, we fought back with uh, our immune system. We fought back with sexual reproduction, so our kids aren't clones of ourselves and our germs have to start all over again, evolving to crack their molecular defenses. We have primitive behavioral emotions like disgust and, and xenophobia. But what we've developed in the last uh, couple of centuries is, uh, is the application of reason to fight back against little, little germs, such as vaccination, such as antibiotics, such as sanitation, such as public health measures. And it's only by applying our ingenuity deployed toward the goal of keeping people alive and healthy and happy that we can push back against all these forces of the cosmos that are trying to, uh, to, to grind us down. Or at best, I mean, now that's a little bit too anthropomorphic. They, don't, they aren't really trying. They just don't yeah. care. And things right. left to their own devices, things get worse. Yeah, there's the uh, teleological kind of overlay that's almost impossible in what I do and and uh, to some extent with my colleagues in, in evolutionary biology, et cetera, do. Uh, you mentioned the media, and I, I thought, you know, I made this observation, <clears throat> you know, recently on online somewhere, you know, that never has it been the case where media were never not guided by a profit motive. In other words, we're living in an extraordinary time where you know billionaires control huge media empires from electro pure electronic to print media um, and 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 hybrid models as well. And uh, and that can be shut off at a, at a moment's notice. Access can be denied at a moment's notice. There's no appeals boards. There's no and there's no government court. It's not it's not governmental, so you can't claim freedom of speech issues or or denial of rights. But it's still a phenomenal experience in the sense that never has it been that a newspaper was completely free of any concern of making a profit? And I wonder, is that contributing to some of the radical kind of polarization that we're seeing? Or, or do you feel like it's unprecedented or, or permanent? Or do you think that that's going to change and people will vote for it in their pocketbooks? I see that less happening less, less and less often nowadays. Yeah, it's certainly not unprecedented in, in that, uh, as, you, as you note, the uh, <clears throat> Um, organs of journalism have always been for-profit uh, organizations, and that's in some ways it's a good thing if the alternative is uh, Pravda or is Vestia, where they're gov government-owned. Um, although you know, BBC doesn't do too badly, although it has its own biases as well, uh, but it has competition, which is a good thing. Uh, the you know, what, what we can count on, because even though it is true that they uh, their ultimate motive is to uh, to, to make a profit. And one of the ways of making a profit in the current climate is to appeal to a uh, rabid constituency. That just the economics are not that you aim at the center and try to expand at the 
um, at the fringes, but rather you find your constituency and you feed them red, red meat. So that is part of the problem. One hopes that journalists, and, and this is true of most of the journalists that I've spoken to, they, at least that the people doing the writing feel that they're serving a higher good. They are uh, altruists in the, or, or, or idealists in the sense that they think they're you know, writing the first draft of history, preventing democracy from dying in darkness, and uh, that one could appeal to that part of them that is idealistic, that isn't just chasing eyeballs and clicks to, to say, well, you know, stop and think twice about what you're doing to the marketplace of ideas, to the public sphere. Because it's true that I think there's that um, there's a lot of uh, thoughtlessness, not just in the pursuit of profit, but in the um, uh, in prosecuting various uh, moral crusades, in in uh, seeing their goal as to um, shift the discussion in a particular direction, as opposed to giving people a factual basis on which to to make these choices. Right. Um, you mentioned a couple things there. One is the marketplace of ideas and the other is red meat. Um, let me go to red meat first. Um, so <laughs> looking back in history, you know, I've been thinking, well, you know, obviously our founding fathers had tremendous, you know, flaws and they and they committed, you know, what we consider now than the, sh you know, the shifting moral zeitgeist, et cetera, uh, and the moral relativism that every age employs. But I'm wondering, like, if there might not be a trend to like pregame the future, you know, kind of a science fiction type way, which I know you're a fan of science fiction, um, having listened to your podcast with Dave Kirtley on the uh, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy many years ago. But um, but nevertheless, looking at the future, saying, well, in the future, probably there'll be no need for red meat. I had on Chase Purdy, who's the author of Billion Dollar Burger, about stem cell-grown meat, lab-grown meat. And it seems clear to me that this will be very commonplace. I had an impossible burger for, you know, for lunch yesterday. Um in the future, is it not possible that any of us who ate red meat, um, I'm not saying that I did or ever have for the future, uh, but uh, that will be looked upon the same way that people look upon our founding fathers for, you know, the atrocity of owning slaves? It could, it could very well happen. So we, we shifted from figurative red meat to literal red yeah, meat. Literal, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's eminently possible. In fact, we should hope that it happens, that some of the practices today that we take for granted will be seen by our descendants as, uh, as barbaric, as we certainly are, are doing plenty of harm. Uh, it also means that looking backward, we, uh, this has been said before, that it's, it's anachronistic and indeed uh, morally obtuse to hold our ancestors to standards that they could not have dreamed of at, at the time. And therefore, the problem is going forward is that we uh, are apt to blame harms on bad people as opposed to bad norms and institutions and assumptions and beliefs. And therefore, to exculpate ourselves, because of course, you know, we're, I'm a good person, that you're a good person, and all my pals are good people. Uh, that is a way of giving yourself a pass at customs that may objectively be abominable. But if your uh, moral <coughs> uh, philosophy is bad things are done by bad people, and we get to decide what's good and bad, you're apt to give yourself a pass at, uh, at indefensible practices. Right. So yes, it may be, and, and uh, meat eating, especially when it comes from factory farms, might be a practice that our descendants look back on the way we look back on slave auctions and heretic burnings and public hangings and laughing at the insane and mm -hmm. keeping harems and so on. 
And then there may be others. Um, our, our regime of uh, criminal punishment, our drug laws, our possession of nuclear weapons, all of these in a particular frame of mind might be seen as, um, as both insane and evil. But uh, they're the only way we know how to do things now. And so we might accept them too quickly if we just think, oh, well, we're, we're all uh, good and decent people. You've given me another <clears throat> business idea. Thank you, Steve, for um, a, a job of future moral consultant. So what practices do I have to stop now in order not to be looked down upon 100 years hence? And I'm going to be consulting with my friends who do have harems to this very day. Um, so thank you for that, Steve. The problem is, <laughs> well, the problem is it's so much, it, it's really easy to do it about our ancestors. It's right, not exactly. easy to do it about ourselves, yes. And, and that, I want to take the flip side of that coin. So in science, we talk as, you know, Isaac Newton once said, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Although some say he was saying it as a as an insult, a pejorative. One of his colleagues, maybe Leibniz, was very short, and he was making fun of him or something. Uh, but you know, the other one is looking over the shoulder of short people. But but nevertheless, we have this reverence. Okay, we know Aristotle believed there were four elements. Okay, now there's you know 114 on the table to my to my left over here on the wall. Um, we know that he thought that you know the Earth was the center of the universe. Okay, but he also came up with the laws of you know modus Ponens and he came up with the laws of logic. He was the first to discover, as I point out, it's very relevant to me and where you are in the Cape. You know, he discovered that whales were mammals. Uh, I think that's very important to my daily life. Um, uh, I'm sure yours too. But but um, but we acknowledge he made mistake. But he made these incredible contributions to our understanding of the natural world and the processes by which we can apprise the world around us. We come in in a spinning globe. We have no no. But why is it that you know the same kind of courtesy reverence? forbearance, if you will, is not extended to in the in the moral sphere to religion. In other words, we we sometimes act as if, well, the world starts spinning and now we're the ones that can judge the people that ate meat in the 2020s, uh, you know, something like that. But but who's to say that, you know, these people weren't the equivalents in religion, which carried a lot of moral um, thinking through, um, as well as the Enlightenment, obviously, but um, but who's to say that they're not giants as well? In other words, it seems like they're looked down upon, at least in the in the in the realm of you know pre-Enlightenment versus in science, we don't look down on Galileo because he didn't come up with the Lorentz contraction. So, to what extent do do we too harshly judge the moral you know standards of religious practitioners, you know, a few hundred years ago and even to this day? Well, it's uh, it, it depends who you're. <clears throat> Um, you, who, who you're targeting? There are uh, people like uh, like my friends Richard Dawkins and uh, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens and uh, uh, Dan Dennett who point out that the Bible is a pretty awful guide to morality because the overwhelming opinion in our culture is that the Bible is the source of our moral values. Even someone as distinguished as Stephen Jay Gould, who we brought up a, a few minutes ago in his book, Rocks of Ages, in uh, making the valid point that science itself can't uh, uh, on its own be a source of morality, says, well, that's what religion is for. But, and that is, you know, he was not a theologian, he was not a philosopher, but he was conveying a, a widespread view that when it comes to right and wrong, we should look to the Bible, our elected officials put their hands on the Bible when they're, they're uh, sworn in. Uh, so the, the people who 
note the some of the atrocities that were sanctioned in the Bible are very much a minority. Now, you're right. If they tried to cancel the Bible and said we should burn the Bible and no one should ever read it and religions should be shut down because, they, because the Bible sanctioned uh, uh, genocide and slavery and rape, now that would be historically obtuse. Uh, there, there are some good things in the in, in the Bible in the Ten Commandments, but you know, thou shalt not cover thy covet thy neighbor's uh, livestock at the same time as it gave a pass to you know rape and slavery, means that we shouldn't take it literally as the source of our values. We should acknowledge, as you say, we absolutely should acknowledge the advances over the uh, rival moralities of its time, such as child sacrifice or human sacrifice more generally. Uh, well, slavery, slavery was prevalent throughout the ancient world, still is on the earth today. There are people, you know, there are societies that practice slavery at this moment. Uh, indeed. I mean, it's not legal anywhere on earth, which is a, a massive advance and, and probably inconceivable around the time <laughs> of the Bible. But um, so we should uh, basically we should not search for saints and villains and say, you know, Bible, boo, or Bible, that's where the, our, moral, our morality comes from. Ne you know, neither one of those is defensible. It's, let's look at what they were saying. Let's give them credit for advances in, in their own era. Let's know where we have to go beyond it in, uh, in, in, in moral issues that they did not reason through very well by the, the, uh, the light of subsequent thinking. I, I heard it said once by some author, <clears throat> I'd rather have uh, one reader 100 years from now than 100 readers a year from now. Basically, prefers longevity. And I'm asking you, what would you prefer? You know, kind of a single person discovering the works of Steve Finker a thousand years from now or a thousand people tomorrow, you know, picking up all the copies of your books? Well, I, I sort of think of it the way I, I, I think of our um, good genealogical progeny, our genetic descendants, uh, of which I have zero directly through my own line, although I, have some, I do have some nieces and nephews, um, but which is that you can't uh, uh, clone yourself. It's not you that's going to be, uh, uh, or that ought to be uniquely remembered, but you're contributing to a collective body of knowledge. And the uh, what I would hope to do is make contributions that make the uh, entirety of our knowledge more accurate, deeper. Uh, not that someone would point to me and say, oh, he got it right, uh, how, however numerous they are now or 100 years, but that the whole idea pool has been uh, uh, enriched some, by some increment thanks to what I've tried to work out. Absolutely, and it has. And we're talking again, Stephen Pinker, Johnstone family professor at uh, Harvard University, uh, an influence on me. Although we've just meeting for the first time, I love your your mind, Stephen. It's it's, uh, it's 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 so engaging when I listen to you and I and I read your works. Um, but just to get back, one last thing on the Bible. You know, I always say look, the Bible had to speak to people thousands of years ago in a language they could understand. It's not simplistic. People that trivialize it and say it's just for Bronze Age peasants. You know, it's it's fairly sophisticated linguistically, et cetera, um, and, and even self-consistent. And, and you know, it has obviously 
troubling aspects. Richard Friedman, Dick Friedman's a good friend of mine, uh, formerly here at UC San Diego, who wrote the Bible, his famous work. Uh, but I always say, you know, something like that that spoke to people thousands of years ago. We don't know exactly when it was, you know, in its final form, but still speaks to people. It still will. You know, not only would I trade, you know, my sales of my book, you know, for one percent of God's book sales, I would I would kill for one percent of God's book sales. But uh, but but also the longevity, as you say. And maybe I want to turn to that because I know you don't have too much time. You're so generous as it is already. But uh, I've heard it said a lot, and you talked about transmission to the future, not for your own progeny. I always point out, like, uh, Steve, what was the name of your eighth great-grandparent on your mother's side's first name? Like, nobody knows what the, you know who that is. And, and that's like a couple generations ha- you know, before, right? Um, <clears throat> and that means, I think, perforce, that in the future, no one's going to know who I am. I have kids, and they'll have kids, hopefully. Uh, but eight generations later, they're going to know who Brian Keating was. Hope, I mean, hopefully, unless I do something uh, to be note of it. But I want to ask you, what what is sort of the most precious commodity to you? Is it, uh, be, you know, material, immaterial? But um, but it's often said, well, you know, money is very important or time is very important. What commodity do you think is the most conserved precious commodity there is in life? Well, certainly um, love and trust of my family um, and, and uh, time, indeed time. Opportunity to uh, access to knowledge and, and uh, information. Um, now, the you know, material prosperity uh, enables many other things in life, such as access to knowledge uh, and uh, not least time. Uh, so it would be you know, a little hypocritical to say that it means nothing. And indeed, one of the things that I learned in, in um, documenting human progress is that prosperity, at least at the, at the level of nations, leads to a lot of other really good things. Richer countries, on average, are um, more literate, more peaceable, more gender egalitarian, uh, are, uh, are safer, less likely to get into wars. There are some ex- notable exceptions, like the United States. But uh, uh, prosperity by itself should not be uh, a, a goal. But a lot of things that prosperity brings are, uh, are also valuable. Now, this is not, it doesn't mean that that's why I want to get as rich as possible. But it does mean that I do appreciate the living in an affluent democracy and all of the gifts that it brings. Yeah, we're talking here in April of 2021, and you know Prince Philip of England just died, and he died at almost 100 years old, a storied life. And I was thinking when he was born, you know, and then in 19, 1921 or whatever, he uh, <clears throat> he, you know, nobody on Earth today would trade their life and their lifestyle uh, for the life of the king or queen of England at that time. In other words, the the lives of people today, even the poorest among you know American society, let's say, are better than the richest kings and queens of Europe. Uh, 300 years ago. And so, you know, that is in part due to this flourishing of human, of the human spirit. And that's why sometimes it does trouble me, Steve, when people want to get out of the problem of, say, anthropocentric global warming, which we both agree upon, uh, but they want to get out of it by brute force approach. So for example, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, It was a great crisis, both on Wall Street and in London. It was called the Great Horse Manure Crisis of 1894. And it shut down Wall Street for weeks and months at a time because the traders couldn't get to Wall Street because the streets were covered in horse crap. And the same thing was predicted in the Times of London, predicted that by uh, 1934, the streets of London would be covered under nine feet of manure. Now, there are some people who say that wouldn't be a bad thing for London, but 
Nevertheless, of course it didn't happen. And, and, but if you had tried to solve the problem using the technology of the day, you would have had horse diapers. You would have put the horses on some, you know, vegan diet. I don't know what they're already on a vegan diet as far as I know. What do I know about horses? But, but the point being, if you try to just brute force out, I think you're denying the scientific, not, I'm not saying you, but, uh, but in general, these approaches where we just want to truncate the problem, brute force it into a solution by the means of the way that we got into it. I feel like that short changes and gives short shrift to the scientific method and the scientific progress that it will kind of invalidate it. If I just say to my kids, kids, your future is bleak. Don't think of any new solutions. You know, for example, we could have radioact- uh, non-radio- radioactive thorium is much more clean source of nuclear fuel with fewer side effects and fewer applications for militaristic uh, deployment of that fuel. Um, but we seem to just want to either shut all, down all petroleum power or shut down, you know, coal digging, and, and and that has improved. But what do you make of this? That that by telling people to curtail something in science, you're maybe stunting the possible growth that could get us out of future problems uh, on Earth. Well, I think you know, putting aside the the the, uh, the horse manure scare, and I think some historians have. To have a kind of jaundiced view as to whether 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 there were apocryphal elements to some of those uh, fears, but nonetheless, it is it is definitely true that the approach to climate change that says we have to reverse the industrial revolution, we've got to stop economic growth, we've got to uh, moralize so that everyone massively conserves and goes back to a, a simpler lifestyle, is just is just not going to do it. It's not going to solve the climate crisis because people. Uh, want energy, they need energy. It's how we got out of extreme poverty. It's how the rest of the world is going to get out of extreme poverty. And uh, if we tell them, stay in your at your current level standard of living, they're, they're just not going to listen to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, any solution that depends on uh, heavy restrictions of, uh, of energy capture is going to uh, arouse furious political opposition, which means that our probably our best hope for getting out of the climate crisis is to develop sources of energy that are so uh, simultaneously abundant and clean and cheap that people will just naturally opt for them. Uh, and that uh, once something is invented, then uh, you know Donald Trump can't uninvent it the way he can pull out of the, the Paris Climate Accords or any other political solution that we that perhaps a, a more enlightened administration implements a less enlightened administration after them can reverse, but not technological advances. You can't uninvent them. So if we did have th- thorium uh, power, and, and like you, I think this should be explored, invested in, together with other sources of abundant zero carbon energy, uh, both conventional nuclear, fourth generation nuclear, perhaps even fusion, although that you might have stronger opinions on that than, than I do, uh, but we should pursue them because that 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 is a path toward solving the climate crisis. Now, it might also depend on changing the incentives. I don't. I wouldn't say that it's only technology that will um, uh, lead to a zero carbon economy. It may be that a price on carbon that uh, increases the incentives to develop clean energy might be part of the solution. Although, then then again. Uh, what we've learned, and I've, I'm starting to change my mind on this, that even though carbon taxes are, in some sense, the most rational way to uh, move us in the direction of a zero carbon economy, what one would hope people would do when there's a carbon tax is to insulate their water heaters and, and uh, turn down their thermostats. In fact, what they do is they put on uh, yellow vests and they riot and they set cars on fire and they block the, the uh, subways. 
So again, even uh, what I would consider a fairly moderate political economic solution immediately runs into problems that a technological solution does not. Kind of subjects that I want to talk about involve my more my field. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to come up with a 26-dimensional string theory, but I do see a very interesting dynamic that is more or less unknown or unprecedented in my field. Maybe it harkens back to the Big Bang versus steady state debates of the previous century, but this involves theories of everything and 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 so-called quantum gravity and the unification of forces and fields with the unfinished business of Einstein. And so we have a book now. Uh, the God Equation, Michio Kaku is on the show, um, and uh, this this follows up on some of the work. It actually ends with the exact last lines of Stephen Hawking, which in his brief history of time were, if we can come up with the comprehensive theory of everything, then we will truly know the mind of God. And I wonder, you know, my, your colleagues and my colleagues, you know, in the physics department that study condensed matter physics and the properties of a superconductor here or some, you know, some par- atomic particle, they never talk about these grandiose terms of God, the God particle, the uh, the the mind of God, the the um, you know, so, so-called uh, God equation. What is it about, you know, physics in particular that engenders these really kind of violent, you know, uh, like flights of grandiosity, perhaps? Uh, or, or is it really, you know, to be expected of something that purports to understand and explain the origin of the universe and everything we see around us? It's not entirely a coincidence because often our thoughts turn to God when we ponder the uh, ultimate, deepest explanation for the explanation for the explanation of everything. And that's that's when people kind of say, oh, well, that, that's what God's for. He's the answer to the question, what's the ultimate explanation of, of uh, everything? So they're, the, the physicists find themselves in the same territory as the theologians, although so do the psychologists, because together with the uh, Kind of the cosmological argument. Well, God is there to, to you know, press the button, and he 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 presses the on switch for the universe. Uh, but of course, God is also invoked to explain the soul and consciousness and and uh, awareness. And biologists uh, find themselves rubbing shoulders with theologians because the the argument for design was always one of the most compelling reasons to believe in God, namely. How could something as complex as uh, the body of an animal arise from uh, mindless physical laws? Well, there's got to be a cosmic designer. So I think the three of us, the psychologists, the biologists, and the physicists, uh, find ourselves bumping up against um, uh, theological questions. Uh, and at some point, we, especially in physics, the, um, you know, the mind of God you know, if you're a Spinozist, and here I'm going to defer to my my other half, uh, Rebecca Rebecca Goldstein, who is uh, among other things an expert in Spinoza. Yeah. Uh, Spinoza's version of God, he's called a pantheist, and yeah. people uh, assume that he must think that God is in uh, you know flowers and trees and bluebirds and babbling brooks. But what he really meant was God is in the ultimate theory of the, the final theory of everything in physics. That. God is just a synonym for whatever equations there are that explain the universe and themselves. So there is uh, maybe there is a bit of, uh, of um, uh, Spinozistic thinking in the physicist invocation of God to, uh, as an, uh, and equating it with the, you know, their ultimate goal. And of course, Einstein quite explicitly was a Spinozist. Right. 
Yeah, although his divining his uh, ultimate understanding or, or reckoning with God is uh, is more complicated than coming up with a theory of everything in some Because <laughs> he said, you know, it's like they said of Stephen Hawking, he changed his mind so much, no matter which side of the bet you took, you always won. Um, but just the last thing on that front, uh, maybe it's related to it, um, but I'd be fascinated to hear what you have to say. In your book, um, Enlightenment Now, you talk about uh, uh, things like, like beauty and simplicity and elegance. And, and you say something like, would Billie Holiday... And, you know, would she be appreciated by some intelligent alien? Uh, you know, is beauty just, you know, does an aardvark, you know, find uh, Miss Universe attractive? <laughs> no, there, there are some things that are, you know, context dependent. And there are other things that might be universal. I wonder, do you think that we f- would search for things like the theory of everything because it's kind of a heuristic. It's like a hack. It's this, It would simplify things if there was a theory of everything. But I'll point out, you might not know this, maybe you do. There's no guarantee that there is a theory of everything. In other words, the theory of everything is needed to quantize gravity. But the gravity in its quantum form is only relevant in two instances. One is at the beginning of time, if the universe emerged from a singularity, which we don't know and can never observe. And two, at the center of a black hole within its event horizon, which is fundamentally unobservable. So in other words, the two main you know, reasons for, the, for quantum gravity to exist, for the quantization, the need for quantum gravity, are unobservable, and therefore we have no contact with them. Um, do you think that that this, you know, holding up the Popperian, and I, I would love to talk to Rebecca, I, I would love to have her on the show to talk about this, but while you're here, until she comes on, we tend to venerate Popper as mathematicians venerate Girdle. In other words, the la- we have mathematician envy. You, you psychologists talk about penis envy. Well, they say the, the biological sciences have physics envy. Uh, we have math envy because at least in mathematics, you can prove which is fundamentally unprovable. But in physics, there's no law. We just have heuristics. So what, what do you make for advice for a scientist like me? I mean, what would you be guided by? Is it really the Popperian demarcation or is it something you know, uh, more, more, more uh, profound than that perhaps? Well, I, I tend to, in, in terms of the philosophy of science or the capturing the scientific methodology, I tend to think that the Bayesian approach is more convincing than the Popperian approach. The, Pop, the Popper might even be a special case of Bayes, namely that it's not that uh, it's not the skeet shooting model of science where you throw out a hypothesis and then uh, you see whether it survives the bullet of falsification. But we increment our credence in a hypothesis up or down. It's not just a binary falsified, not falsified. Uh, evidence can increase confidence in a hypothesis or decrease it without falsifying it altogether. And indeed, it's, uh, I, I, I'm not uh, enough of a philosopher of science to, to work this out, but I suspect that a lot of the, uh, the, the biases that uh, scientists in general and physicists in particular have toward beauty in a theory and elegance, maybe that it's, uh, it deserves a kind of Bayesian uh, high prior probability uh, because it's so, uh, to the extent that what we sense as beauty is often parsimony, simplicity, elegance, that is a small number of postulates can uh, uh, unfold to deduce a large number of implications, then you have to believe fewer things a priori if you posit an elegant, uh, beautiful, simple theory than a complex one. You're kind of on the hook to prove more if you start out with a more complex theory than if you start out with a, a simpler theory. And maybe there's something to be worked out there as to why uh, why it, it seems reasonable for physicists to pursue beautiful theories and why 
often, though I, I, I'm sure you can give me examples that not always the, right. the, the simple, beautiful theory turns out to be correct, but I'm sure there are conspicuous cases where it has not been. Yes, the psychological absolutely. question is why, as you point out, and I'll, uh, you're kind of channeling William James, who said, to the, to the bear, it is the she-bear that is meant to be loved, to the lion, the lioness. Uh, <laughs> our own standards of beauty uh, seem parochial and species-specific. On the other hand, as David Deutsch pointed out, your fe fellow physicist, isn't it a little bit curious that uh, flowers evolved to attract insects and we find them beautiful? Uh, or butterflies or peacocks? Uh, since the peahen's sense of beauty and our sense of beauty overlap and not because of descent from a common ancestor, those evolved independently, could there be some kind of platonic definition of beauty that pe peahens and humans independently stumbled upon, maybe having to do with some sort of counter-entropic force that is, or, or, or uh, phenomenon, something that gives us pure colors as opposed to muddy brown that you get from mixing stuff together, symmetry, highly improbable state arrangement of matter, uh, uh, repetition, simplicity, things that signify some kind of underlying causal force amidst the chaos of, of the universe and therefore are worthy of attention regardless of species. That's a, a kind of speculation at the intersection of physics and psychology. No, I, I really resonate with that, uh, figuratively at least. But yeah, I want to point out that they, they've done studies, and I'm sure you know this, where they take you know, Brad Pitt, who with the present exception of you and, you and I, was once voted the most handsome man on earth. And uh, they take his face and they they split it down the middle and they reflect the left onto the right. And he's hideous and he's grotesque. So it's really the broken symmetry. And that applies to physics as well. The Higgs mechanism, spontaneous symmetry breaking, uh, your Shelley Glashow, uh, former Harvard uh, you know, disciple of Schwinger, et cetera. These are all broken symmetries. And that's where the physics gets interesting. I want to finish up if you have, you have two more minutes, three more minutes, Steve. Yep. Okay. So you wrote a wonderful book, speaking of parsimony, called The Sense of Style. It's not as well known, but it should be as well known as all your other books. Uh, and it speaks about this, you know, the distillation and the construction of a voice and, and a style as a writer. I want to ask you, uh, first of all, what's the best writing advice you ever heard or gave or you know received? Uh, and then what book do you give out most frequently that's not your own as a gift? Oh, yes. Uh, I guess that the uh, two main uh, bits of writing advice would be to read good writers, savor their writing, try to reverse engineer what makes it work because there are just too many rules to memorize them one by one, and you're never really going to assimilate them if you memorize them and apply them. But if you absorb good writing and you think, oh, gee, that sentence really zings or it's really beautiful, what makes it work? That's one bit of advice. Another is to be aware of the curse of knowledge, the fact that when you know something, it's extraordinarily difficult to imagine what it's like not to know it. And probably the chief sin of writing, especially in the sciences, is that when writers assume too much on the part of the reader. It's just obvious to the writer at the time, and they don't bother to provide the vivid uh, perceptual detail, the concrete examples, the explanation of the technical concepts that are second nature to them, but not to their uh, readers. Certainly, Strunk and White, uh, The Elements of Style is the first style manual I got, and it's got a lot of flaws, but it's charming in its own way, and, uh, and a lot of the bits of advice that it has have stood the test of time. Not all, but, uh, but a lot of, the, a lot of especially their prime directive, which is an excellent example of itself, omit 
needless words. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and superfluous commas that are extemporaneous. No. Okay. So Steve, the last section of this, uh, of this podcast is called the impossible three, the thrilling three. If you've got a couple more minutes, I'll ask them and we'll get you out of there. Um, so the first one involves writing, uh, and it's writing your ethical will. And it's something that is known in Hebrew as a zava'ah, and people use it, Jews, non-Jews, people with children, without children. It's essentially meant to distill your wisdom or ethical teachings into something that your ideological heirs, as you spoke about earlier, would inherit, not just your biological heirs for those of us that have them. What would you put on a will uh, that would encapsulate your ethical imperative, if you will? Well, the original uh, uh, ethical will from Jacob to his uh, 12 sons was a little bit problematic. It included, you know, may you have your hand around the necks of your enemies. So I think I'll appeal to a, slightly, wild later, ass, right? <laughs> a slightly later era in, in Judaism, the, uh, the, the uh, rabbinical as opposed to the tribal uh, era. And, and uh, I don't think we could do much better than Rabbi Hillel, who said, uh, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Yeah. Well, you're the second uh, humanist uh, to, uh, to, to quote from the, from the Bible, the Tanakh. The other one was a, a woman by the name of Andrurian, who is Carl Sagan's uh, widow. And she quoted, um, act justly, love mercy, period. So she quoted from Mika, but the last sentence is, walk humbly with your God. But she omitted, <laughs> she omitted that as a good humanist would. Okay, second question. What material object or knowledge would you put on a monolith like that in 2001, A Space Odyssey, that has uh, meant to be discovered by extraterrestrials that basically is a billboard to say, how awesome was planet Earth back in the, in the year 2021? What would you put on a billion-year lasting time capsule? Well, uh, how about the contents of Wikipedia? Uh, it would be a pretty, a pretty big, um, solid state drive, but uh, but it, it it should be doable, and uh, it would be hard to single anything out. But it it itself is a remarkable cultural achievement, and of course embedded in it would be uh, the vast amount of, uh, of of human knowledge that we have accumulated. Much better than one of those AOL CDs that we used to get in the mail. Last question, Steve. Going backwards in time instead of going billions of years or hundreds of years. The only way of, according to uh, Arthur C. Clarke, the namesake of our organization here, the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. That's the name of this podcast, Origin. I want to ask you as a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, what advice would you give yourself to give you the courage to do as you have done to go into the impossible? Well, I've, I think a great part of wisdom is to savor what you have, to appreciate what you have. And uh, I have been so improbably uh, fortunate in my life that to look back with regret would itself be uh, unwise. I, uh, I, I by no means led a, a perfect life. Lots I've suffered tragedies, as all human beings have. But in terms of the fates of humanity, I just have to appreciate how fantastically fortunate I am and to look backward in, in appreciation rather than uh, regret or second guessing. Steve, I could talk to you for hours, but you'd grow weary of me and, and maybe get some Harvard bodyguards. I don't know. Steve, I want to thank you so much for going into the impossible with me. And I, I wish you a wonderful weekend and all the best. And I hope we can meet someday in person. I sure hope so. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks, Steve. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. 
Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.